We are continuing our series that I've entitled Joy to the World. Uh, We are looking at uh, the story of the people of God, particularly in the book of Isaiah. And it's in Isaiah that the people of God are experience persecution and devastation and destruction. These are a people that needed, they were in need of some serious joy. Uh, they weren't, they weren't experiencing joy. Everything they had known, all of their security, all of their peace, everything they had come to know and love had been ripped away from them. And so they were longing for joy. They were longing for joy to come into the world. And if Advent is a season of expectation, a a season of anticipating, a season of waiting for the arrival. You can only imagine the people of God in Isaiah, 700 years before the Messiah is born, anticipating the future king, the one that would come. As we talked about two weeks ago, the one that would come to be the light in the midst of the darkness. As we talked about last week in Isaiah chapter 11, the king that would come to once and for all destroy sin and death. And we're going to look this week at Isaiah chapter 35 as we wrap up this series this morning. So Isaiah chapter 5, the entire chapter, it's only 10 verses long. Hear the word of God. Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 10. Hear this promise to the people of God, and I pray that it's your promise as well this morning. Verse 1 says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. And the burning sand shall become like a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lay down, The grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk in the way, and even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the very word of God. Holy Spirit, come and preach to our weary souls, and may we see Jesus, for that is who we have come to see. Amen. Christmas is about coming home, right? Christmas is about coming home, the, the sweetness of reunion. We are entering into a week of homecoming of sorts. We are coming into a week where the airports will be bustling and busy. The roads, if they are not, haven't been busy enough, will be jam-packed of cars driving to and fro, visiting family and friends. And ultimately, uh, the story of Christmas and the story that we see here in Isaiah 35 is a story about going home. It's a story of reunion. And deep down inside of all of us, there is a longing to be home. 
Deep down, every single one of us, there is a longing to be reunited. There is a longing to be home. Deep down, there is a restlessness. And our culture understands it. It's why we see, especially at Christmas time, so many commercials about coming home. How many commercials are there about people in the military surprising their family at Christmas time with coming home? It's for those that are still bitter about LeBron James, the Miami Heat fans. Remember when LeBron James left Miami and went to Cleveland, what did he say? He said, Cleveland, I'm coming home. It's why even a Publix commercial can make us cry. You might recall a few years ago, uh, the Publix commercial around Christmas time was about a young man, a med student in New York City. And he was home alone for Christmas. His family was miles away and it showed, it went back and forth from the one scene with his family celebrating Christmas Day together and the other scene would break away to New York into this quiet, empty hospital. It seemed like the only person in the hospital was this young med student and and it shows kind of the, the depression and the feeling of being abandoned and rejected that day and celebrating Christmas Day all by yourself without your family and friends alone in a hospital and it shows him traveling by himself. He happens to be the only one on the, you know, tugging at our, our, our heartstrings, the only one on the train all by himself, music playing in the background, flashes to the family, celebrating together, getting the turkey and the ham out of the oven. He even calls his family and they all wish him a Merry Christmas. And then that very sad scene at the end of the commercial where he walks into his apartment by himself, walks up that lonely staircase only to put his key in the door and to open the door. And who's there? His family. His family had surprised him. His family had come home to him. It's a story of homecoming. And there's something about that feeling and that longing to be home that resonates in our heart. And here in Isaiah 35, it's no different. The people of God had lost everything. See, for them, home was their security. Home represented stability. It was a safe place for them. It was a safe space for them. And they had lost everything. Everything had been taken away from them. All security, all stability, all safety had been ripped away from the Israelites, and they were longing for home. And so Isaiah 35 is, if in the spirit of anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah, he's not just the one that will be the, come to be the light in the midst of the darkness. He's not just the one that will destroy sin and death. He is the one that comes down to bring us home, to bring us the safety and the security and the satisfaction that each one of us long for. But for us to really understand Isaiah 35, to understand the promise of coming home, we have to first understand ruin. What was the ruin that they were experiencing as a people? As I said, they had lost everything. All sense of purpose and safety and security were gone. It was a sense of rejection and abandonment, even causing some people to wonder, Has God abandoned me? Has God rejected me? But you see, the story of longing for home, the story of longing to be accepted and to not be rejected any longer, the longing for reunion is something that is not isolated here in Isaiah 35. You see, Isaiah 35 is simply a small picture, a glimpse, a microcosm of the whole story of the Bible, 
You see, from Genesis to Revelation, there is one story, and it's a story of exile and homecoming. You see, in Genesis, what is the story? God creates Adam and Eve, and he provides for them a perfect home, full of safety, full of security, full of blessing. And then in Genesis chapter 3, because of sin, because of the fall, what happens? They're cast out. They're put in exile. And the whole story of the Bible is how humanity gets back to God, how humanity returns to God and is reunited at home. The story of Moses, the people of God enslaved and in exile in Egypt for 400 years. And what is Moses' calling? To lead them out of exile and to make their journey home. Even in the story of Jesus, the time of Jesus, even though the people of God were in their geographical home, they never really felt at home. Their home was occupied by the Romans. And so even in the time of Jesus, the people of God felt that there was a sense of exile, a sense of a loss of home. The story of the prodigal son is a story ultimately of what? He runs away from home and he's in a figurative exile until he realizes that he's in a pigsty uh, flat on his face and he eventually is called by his gracious father, where? Home. I could go on and on and on. I'm just trying to emphasize for us to understand the power of the promise of coming home in Isaiah 35, we have to understand what we have ultimately lost. And we have to ultimately understand the story of the Bible. Home is that only safe place, that safe place or the place that we hope would be a safe place where it doesn't matter how we look, how we talk, what we do, because ultimately everyone knows who we are. It's that one place where we are accepted, or at least home is that one place we hope we would be accepted. And that's what we've lost. And that is the great theme of the Bible and the great theme here in Isaiah 35. They have lost their way. They have lost their hope. They have lost their home. And the promise here in Isaiah 35 and the entire Bible ultimately is that there is one coming down that will make this broken world home again. People that are lost and in exile will be brought home and reunited with the Father. So we first have to understand the gravity of what we lost. It has been what we have been facing from the beginning of time, from the very beginning of the fall in Genesis 3. We have been a people in exile, longing to be home. And each single one of us, at some level, admits this, or needs to admit this, that this world, as much as we try to make it home, this world, as much as it tr we try to make it fit, just doesn't always seem to fit. It's why every single one of us, regardless of what you believe this morning, looks around the world and goes, it doesn't seem like this should be the way it is. It, because home should fit. Home should be comfortable. And we look around the world and life and we go, something seems off. Regardless of what you believe this morning, something just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem like home. So what will home look like? 
Home will look like what is described in every verse, virtually, of this very short chapter. In, in, in verse 1 and 2, we see what the restoration of our home will look like. What is the home that will fit? What is the home that we're longing for? In verse 1 and 2, it talks about this wilderness, this dry land that will one day be glad in verse 1. It says later in verse 1 that the desert shall rejoice and blossom. In verse 2, it says it shall blossom so abundantly that it will actually sing with joy. What's he talking about there? Deserts are a place, deserts and wilderness are a place of wandering and death. It's a place of no hope. It's a place that is lost. And he's saying even in the midst of death, even in the midst of the deserts and the wilderness, there will be life, so much life, it will be like the wilderness is now singing for joy. It's rejoicing because the God of the universe has come down to make all things new. He's describing the world that is to come, this dramatic transformation. And then he goes on to say in verse three and five, or three and four, that strength will be given to weak hands and firm, and make firm the feeble knees. Weak hands and feeble knees is synonymous throughout the scripture with depression. These were people going through real emotional and spiritual and physical depression. Hands that are weak and knees that are weak. And he's saying to the weak hands and the feeble knees, there will be strength. There will be strength given to the weak hands and the feeble knees that we all feel that at some level. We go through life and some of us feel it all too much, all too severely. We go through life and we go, whether it's physically or spiritually, emotionally, at some level, you feel the weight of this world. For some of you, you go, yes, it is breaking me as you speak this morning. And the promise is that there's one that is coming. There is one that is coming, a king, a good father that is coming down that we call Messiah, that we call Jesus Christ, that is coming to make all things new. He's coming to earth. In verse 7, it says, the burning sand shall become like a pool. That doesn't even make sense. And it's supposed to blow our minds. The, the desert sands, there's no water in the desert. The burning sand shall be like water. There shall be water. It'll be a pool. And the thirsty ground, it's saying the, the grounds that are deprived of water. So what? There'll be springs of life, not just puddles of water, water springing up from it. Remember I talked about this last week that Isaiah loves to embellish the metaphor. Remember last week in Isaiah 11, we talked about this coming king who will do What? that will create a, will, will renew the world in such a way that the, the wolf will be able to lie down with the lamb, that the nursing child will play peekaboo over the cobra's nest. The, the audacity of such illustrations, that's the point. Deserts don't have water that springs out of it. Deserts don't blossom with life and vegetation. And he's saying that there will be such a dramatic transformation in this world. The world will be renewed in such a way by this coming Messiah that it will be like the world is singing. The ground will be singing for joy. Life will come up. It will blossom and there will be water and water springing up to eternal life. 
Go back to verse 5 and 6. Not only will there be physical renewal for the world, but what will happen in verses 5 and 6, it says, eyes will be opened and ears will be unstopped. The lame will leap, leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. Once again, embellishing these metaphors to show us the gravity and, and the dramatic nature of the transformation of the Messiah, this messianic king. Blind people will see, the deaf will hear, and the lame will not just walk, he will leap for joy. The mute will not just be able to talk, he will actually sing in the choir. He will sing with joy, he will shout with joy, showing us the dramatic nature. And all of these things, eyes being opened and deaf being able to hear and mute being able to talk, it should remind us of something Matthew chapter 11, Jesus goes to the disciples of John the Baptist. John the Baptist who was saying for, for, for a period of time to his followers that there is one coming that will do all of these things. And what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11 to the disciples of John the Baptist? He says to them, go back to John and you tell him everything you've preached, everything you've longed for, going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 35, you are seeing it in your day. So when Jesus begins to heal people and, re and restore sight and restore hearing to the blind and lame people being able to walk and leap and the mute being able to talk, it is the fulfillment, the great fulfillment that I am the king that was promised to you, not just by John the Baptist, but 700 years before I came, there was one Isaiah that promised that I would come to bring about restoration. And this is the vision of our church, to bring hope to South Florida to be a church that is a beacon of hope in the midst of darkness and suffering and brokenness. Leslie Newbegin, great Scottish Presbyterian uh, missionary of this past century, said this, you know what Advent means? This is what Advent means. That someone radical has entered the world so that the task of the church and the task of the leader in that church is to make this other world credible to make it possible for men and women to believe that this world, as it is, is not the last word, to keep constantly reminding men and women to keep the flame of hope and the faith and the possibility of a different kind of world alive. Therefore, the mission of the church is to bring about spiritual renewal, but that will only happen, listen to this, when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life, uh-oh, and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not yet members, as a sign and instrument and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. You see, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church exists to announce to the world that one day the desert will blossom. Coleridge Presbyterian Church exists to announce to the world that one day this dry land will spring with the water of life. That is why we exist as a church to go everywhere where there is brokenness and be used by Jesus to make it whole. That's why we have committed our lives to the reconciliation of people and the renewal of all things as a church. In 1962, founding pastor of this church sent this message to the congregation that was two years old 
James Kennedy said this. He said, in a very short time, God has done the remarkable. The work of the Spirit is wondrous to behold. People that are broken are now finding rest. People that are weary are now coming home. This is all the work of the incomparable Christ who doeth all things well. But the work is just beginning. This church does not exist for us. This church will forever be dedicated to the community that we exist in so that the vast multitudes in this city that have never heard the historic gospel of Jesus Christ will come, that men and women and boys and girls will find the only hope that exists for a dying world. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation, and now is the time to lengthen the cords of this church and send forth the gospel in this city city and this community has never seen before. And 50 years later, we continue that vision. We continue that vision to be the light in the midst of the darkness, to be a place of rest and hope for those that are weary and those that are heavy laden. This is the work of the church. We're on the team. We are on a team of restoration, making all things new. This is the role that we play in our Father's business. This is what you've been created for. Last thing. Not only do we have to understand the ruin that they were facing in Isaiah 35 and the ruin that we experience as people that are in exile. Not only do we have to understand what this, what home really looks like, the home that we were built for looks like, we have to answer the question, how do we find our way home? Well, the answer is in verse eight. In verse eight, it says there shall be a highway there. Praise God. There's a path. There's a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Well, that's a dilemma. God, on the one hand, says there is a way. There's a highway. But the unclean shall not pass over it. As one preacher in the community said, there's no sun pass on this highway. There must be another way. You see, for all of us, whether we realize it or not, we are the unclean. We are the ones that deal with the reality of being in this broken world and being lost and in exile. So the reality is that we are the unclean. And so we have to figure out that there must be and come to the reality that there must be an entirely different way. Because the highway that leads us home, the highway that leads us to the home that we long for, the highway that leads us to the home that you and I were built for and created for, only accepts those that are clean. But later in verse 9 and 10, we see hope. You see, even though only those that are unclean shall pass over it, which disqualifies every single person in this room, there is hope. You see, in verse 9 and 10, at the end of verse 9, it says, but the redeemed shall walk there. And in verse 10, it says, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. You see, although we are faced with the dilemma of being unclean and being in exile, God makes us this incredible promise in Isaiah 35 that the redeemed and the ransomed will walk there. 
You see, I love that word ransomed. It is a strong word and it is a harsh word. And we sang it this morning in the hymn and the carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Think of the idea of being ransomed. Being held at ransom, being held in captivity, that is what life is like in this world. The aching and the fear and the brokenness of being in this world, it is as one that is held in, capt- in captivity. It is one that is being held by ransom. But it says the redeemed and the ransomed. You see, in verse 4 of Isaiah uh, 35, it says at the end of verse 4 that with recompense of God, he will save you. What in the world does recompense mean? Recompense is a payment for debt, a debt that you and I owe. And God says in Isaiah 35 that the only way you're counted with the redeemed, the only way that you can be ransomed and put on the highway home is that there has to be one that comes down to pay this recompense for you, that pays the penalty of your debt. And that is ultimately the story of Christmas, is it not? You see, the story of Christmas is the story of one that has come down one that has come down by the name of Jesus Christ, the one that has come down and was born into homelessness, born not in a normal home, but born in a cold stable, a cold and dark stable, born into homelessness, one that lived in homelessness and obscurity. It says the Son of God does not even have a place to lie his head. And then at the very end of his life, where is he executed? It says he is executed and crucified outside the city gates. He is born into homelessness, lives in homelessness, and dies in homelessness and and obscurity. Why? See, the miracle of Christmas is this, that the Son of God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, came down and became homeless so that you could go home. So that those that were living in the captivity of exile, in your lostness and in your despair, could find their way home. And home here is described at the end of verse, of verse 10 in chapter 35, that they will come to Zion. Zion was the place of the temple mount. Zion was the place where man would meet with God. And you went to the temple with trembling and fear because you didn't know if you would be accepted or rejected. But there is no question left in this chapter. There is no fear of rejection for those that are redeemed and ransomed. You see, the promise for Israel in Isaiah chapter 35, and the promise for you this morning is for those that are redeemed and ransomed by the debt that Jesus paid on your behalf, have the promise that you are on the path, you are on the highway of going to the place of full acceptance, of full joy, of full love and grace, being welcomed home by your heavenly Father. You are on the highway to Zion, the place where you meet God, the place that you were created for the place that you were built for, it's your homecoming, so that you too can sing for joy and you too can allow your restless heart to one day and finally be settled. Let me end with this. 
It was a mother and daughter in Brazil. The mother was Maria, and Cristina was the daughter. They lived in a very poor village, 100 miles outside of Rio. And in this poor village, they lived in a one-bedroom hut with dirt floors and pallets for beds. Christina's father left at an early age, and it was just up to the two of them, Christina and Maria, the mother, to make ends meet, and they worked day and night to provide for themselves. But Maria often reflected that Christina was always restless. Even at 12 years of age, she made the comment that this life is not for me. One day I will move out. I will go to the city. She, the, Maria, the mother, said, my daughter was always restless, always wandering. And when Christina turned 14 years old, she did just that. When Maria woke up, she realized that Christina had packed her bags and moved away. She ran away from home. A next-door neighbor tipped her off that she had gone and somehow gotten into the city. She went to Rio. And after two weeks of not hearing from her daughter, she thought the worst. She said, either my daughter Christina is dead or she has gotten into such a lifestyle because there's only one way for somebody with no education and no money to make money in Rio. Unfortunately, even having to sell your body. And so Christina's mother, Maria, gathered some money from the neighborhood She got her way into Rio, and the first thing she did when she got to Rio, she went to a convenience store and made a hundred black and white photos of herself, and she wrote a note on the back, and she went around to every hotel, every nightclub, every bar, every place, unfortunately, a 14-year-old girl with no education and no money would go in Rio, and started to post the picture of herself in every hotel and bar and nightclub in Rio with a very special note on the back. And one day, after months and months of running, months and months of that dream of finding yourself, months and months of wandering and running, 14-year-old Christina walks down the flight of stairs at a hotel, her young face tired. It says her brown eyes no longer danced with the youth that she dreamed of. Her laughter was broken, and her dream had simply become a nightmare. Thousand times over, she longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet at home, and yet the village seemed just too far away. But as she descended the stairs of this hotel, this dark hotel, Her eyes noticed a familiar picture. It was the picture of her mother. And written on the back of this picture was this compelling invitation from her mom. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Just come home. And she did. She came home. You see, Christmas is a picture of Jesus would have an invitation to you to come home. The home that you've longed for. The home that you were built for. The home that is safe and secure. The home that says, come here, 
You're fully accepted. You're fully loved. For those that this morning find yourself running and exhausted, weary and empty, the promise and invitation at Christmas time is for you to come home. Because there's no one, no one that welcomes his children home like God.